0: You're working on something good, but if it's really good, you're gonna need a bigger room. And when you're in the bigger room, you might not know what to do. You might have to think of how you got started, sitting in your little room. Da, 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 da.
1: Welcome to White Tiger Radio, coming to you from the White Tiger Lounge. Tonight we've got a theme of songs and stories. Uh, You're going to hear seven stories and seven songs. We charged a handful of writers with the task of creating a short story that was linked to a song Possibly the song played at the end of the story. The characters heard it in the story. Perhaps it just evoked something for them. We've got writers from. California. From California.
2: Portland, of course. Louisville. Seattle. Or Louisville. Louisville. So. uh, I think we have someone who's moving to New York. That's right. So So we have a New York writer.
1: This is a national national operation here, so thank you for listening in tonight.
2: We're very happy happy to have you. I'm gonna introduce our first performance, and this is someone who has been a big inspiration for the show. He's the creator and animating genius behind the Phillips and Flathead Radio Hour, which airs on the internet on Fridays at 10 p.m. And if you don't know about that show, you gotta email us and we'll get you on their list. Just be warned, you can't really expect to ever get off their list, but you're not gonna wanna get off their list. So our first performance tonight is from a person who has really paved the way for this whole internet radio thing for us, and uh, he's gonna tell you a little story.
3: Even if it's not true, we like to think that everybody has their own special skill or talent. My special skill, my superpower, is my sense of timing as it relates to when to arrive at a rock show. When I go to a rock show, I usually get there precisely when the music starts. The band that I want to see. I mean, there could be other bands, but I don't want to see them. Their music can go on, but the band I want to see, their music won't start till I get there. I don't know if it's the universe setting this up for me, or the band just knows I'm not there and they won't start. But that's my skill. There have been times that I've gotten to gigs early, and then there could be some other complication that may prevent me from seeing the band that I wanted to see. And this is a story about one of those events that happened to me in 1985. In 1985, my favorite band was a Washington, D.C.-based punk rock band called Bad Brains. And I really love Bad Brains. I still do. I went to go see them on October 12th, 1985. The Addicts were the UK punk rock band. Um, They were opening for Bad Brains at a really crappy, tiny little club called Wabash Hall down in San Diego. Some friends and I drove down to San Diego. We had the uh, front little trunk of the Volkswagen Bug. We were driving loaded up with Lucky Lager. I don't know if you remember Lucky Lager, but Lucky Lager was kind of crappy beer that came in a stubby 11 ounce bottle had a rebus in the cap so you could try to solve the puzzles with your buddies as you developed a buzz it cost about four dollars and fifty cents for a 12 pack so we had several cases worth i drank too much i got pretty uh shit-faced went into the club and the addicts were warming up a little bit plugging in and i saw hr who's the singer for bad brain sitting on a chair and so i go over to talk to him and like hey hr man tell me about Rastafarianism or something and uh then i passed out on the floor right in front of hr (laughs) so anyway i missed the addicts set um i kind of like sailed in and out of consciousness there on the floor and people were nice they they kept a a protective barrier around me that they didn't let the uh, um, slam dancing punk rockers stomp on me or anything and i was just sort of laying there at this vibrating floor and um the smell of punk rock if you don't know the smell of punk rock if you were never there i'll tell you punk rock smelled like the imagine the health and beauty aisle at a drug store After an earthquake and everything's fallen on the floor all the perfumes all the all the hair products everything has fallen and It's all created some sort of stew then somebody walked down the aisle Smoking cigarettes and just tossing the butts into this pool of tonics and then Somebody jumped bottles and bottles of beer on top of that. That's what punk rock smelled like so I was laying in this smell, the sound, vibrating my body, unconscious, in and out of consciousness. And then, at the very first, the very first note of Bad Brain's set, I was instantly rejuvenated. I, I was resurrected. I was like a punk rock Lazarus. I leapt to my feet. I was instantly in the slam. I was flying through the air. I was... Doing stage dives, I had the time of my life, and I remember it clearly. I remember everything about that night, except the period when I was blacked out.
0: Bye.
2: and the song was Pay to Come, that followed a story by Phil Tiso called Bad Brains, Wabash Hall, 85. Thanks for that story, Phil. The the smell of punk rock. You can actually describe a smell with words. You did it. And I guess that the person who's going to do it is the punk rock Lazarus, who could definitely be the guy to describe the smell of punk rock. That was our first story. Phil Tiso.
1: I think it's going pretty well so far. I think so too. Up next, we have a story by Bridget Bagard.
4: Together, they drive toward their destination. Actually, it's just two people riding in the same car, and perhaps that car is going nowhere, but that remains to be seen. The passenger looks out the side window, straining to see something that isn't there. Hope, perhaps? Instead, she sees a car alongside them, temporarily, full of people who are smiling and laughing and enjoying the ride. They drive on, and she wonders why she is so miserable and how she can be with someone yet feel this terribly alone. The passenger is frantically attempting to think of something to say. Anything. Nothing. The silence between them has grown insurmountable. The silence has taken on a life of its own, but it's more than the awkward quiet that is slowly decimating her spirit, it is the void between them now. Her wit has completely abandoned her. Anything she could speak up and say, it all seems too obvious, and trite, and desperate. Her vocalized thoughts would be an insult to the perfect pain silence he has created. And so she slinks further into her seat, retreating into her thoughts. The driver fiddles with the music again, selecting a new album, dispassionately listening, moved by nothing. She marvels at his almost clinical detachment from music. Music has always been everything to her. Its emotion, its energy, it's been a constant companion in her life almost since before she can remember Yet, he manages to strip the joy out of music with his immaculate, alphabetized walls of CDs. He never truly listens to music. He merely screens it to determine if a CD is good enough to make it into, as he puts it, the collection. And so it is, in all aspects of his life. Things mostly disappoint him. He listens to music without even hearing it. He tells her to speak up more in group conversations. Then he completely talks over her when she does. He tells her he doesn't want to find a 1950s housewife, leaving her to exist in a weird, undomestic captivity, lest she actually cook something by mistake and cause him to envision her in an apron. That damn, revolting, 1950s apron. He even has rules about reading the Sunday paper together, and he does so in such a regimented fashion that no one else can partake in his Sunday tradition. Her coffee grows cold, just waiting for it to be offered a section to read. Now she again looks out the window, but is filled with defiant resolve. She is looking for her escape route. If she hops out of the car now, there is no one nearby who can pick her up. She's so far from home, so far from her old self. If she calls her friends to help her, to rescue her, would they even recognize her? Looking over at the driver, she wonders how she even got here, in this car, with this person. The driver doesn't take his eyes off the road, but he knows she is looking at him. He changes the music again. She looks away and slips on her headphones. And with this song, she is done. Hmm.
1: Together They Drive, by Bridget Begard. Up next, we've got Jack Miller.
2: Let's just say that the grocery store has always been a challenge for me. You've seen people like me before. I know you have. Perhaps you've even thought to yourself, that poor son of a bitch looks like he's having a bad time of it. Or maybe, less charitably, what the fuck is wrong with that guy? I know. Believe me. I know. If you think it's difficult being around that guy in the grocery store, try on a little empathy for a second and imagine how difficult it is to be that guy. Let me be systematic. There are two main sources of my anguish. First is the nature of grocery stores themselves. I understand that they're business enterprises charged with making money, that it's a tough sector, and that certain tried and true merchandising gimmicks can make the difference between profit and failure. I know and even appreciate the reasons why grocery store managers do things like rotate the fruits and vegetables to different locations in the produce section, so that even long-time regular customers like me have to hunt like fools for a head of lettuce, or ask for help finding a goddamn avocado, so that maybe, in my attempt to collect up the salad-making supplies that I buy all the time, and should be able to locate with muscle memory alone while thinking of other more important things, in my frantic and ever-redirected search for these simple items, I just might see and buy something I wasn't planning on buying. Wow, kumquats! Kumquats might be good on a salad. He too. Hell, I'll give it a try. I get it. I went to college. These things are not a mystery to me like they are to some of the dumb fucks whom I've heard say things like, why do they have to move everything around all the time? And not with a metaphysical level of frustration like I'd say it with, but with genuine wonder and ignorance. Why do they have to move everything around all the time? Because they think we're suggestible enough to buy a bunch of crap we didn't intend to buy while we're distracted and lost, trying to locate the usual things we're here to pick up. And for the most part, they're right. We do end up buying a bunch of crap, and they get to stay in business and maybe make a 1% or 2% profit margin. I understand these things. Yet knowing and being armed against this kind of manipulation does not, I repeat, does not make it any easier for me to put up with the grocery store. And in this, I think I have the morally correct position. Second, there's the people. There's no form of self-absorbed, instinctual, or outright dickish behavior that doesn't surface in the grocery store. That's correct, ma'am. Your diagonally parked cart is in fact blocking everybody from getting past, while you laboriously compare the nutritional information between creamy and chunky peanut butter. Yes, sir, you do have what is clearly several dozen items in the express lane, and now you're going back for one more item that's all the way across the store, and yes, that's not only infuriating to those of us behind you, it's fucking rude in the extreme! Indeed, teenage fuckwit, it is fun to get stoned and go to the grocery store when it's really crowded and drop small, expensive items into people's carts. And it would also be fun to grab the back of your neck and smash your face into a row of pickle jars. But you wouldn't want me to do that now, would you? It's because of the people that I shop exclusively at a 24-hour grocery store, and then, whenever possible, only in the small hours of the morning. There are few, if any, customers at this time, and after midnight, they let the stock guys choose the music, and they tend towards the heavier side of the rock spectrum for the most part and that eases my mind a little bit. However, this merely removes the terrible people and the tepid, mind-scarring grocery store Muzak from the equation. There is still the store itself to contend with, and this is where my struggle takes on a Ahabian dimensions. I battle myself. I nourish my deepest psychic wounds. I rage at the impotence that prevents me from defeating the beast that torments me. I simply give up self-control and blurt out whatever comes to my mind, When, say, all I need is a gallon of milk, and I have to hike the length and breadth of the store to get it. Jesus Christ! Why does the goddamn milk have to be in the back corner of the goddamn store? I promise you, I'm not going to buy more shit just because I have to schlep past every goddamn item in the store to get to the goddamn milk, which is all I need right now, thank you very much. A new flavor of Doritos in the end cap, huh? A sale on Pepperidge Farm cookies. Bargains on discounted wine. Holy shit, you're right, store. Why didn't I think of these things myself? Because I do not need them, that's why. I might need a bottle of water to cross this desert of pointless consumerism, but I absolutely do not need two-for-one toothpaste. One night, the assistant manager on duty strolled up to me during one of my rants. Excuse me, sir, can I help you with something? Of course, I had been expecting something like this for a long time. What I wasn't expecting was the simple, inquisitive tone, or the fact that when I swung around to yell, No, there's no help for any of this, no help whatsoever, as I'd always imagined I would, I came face to face with one of the most beautiful women I've ever personally seen at close range. Even in that horrible white lower management shirt, navy blue polyester pants, and sensible shoes, even in the fluorescent lighting, she was radiant, stunning, intimidating. Alison, her name tag read, an awful name that did nothing to detract from her cosmic splendor. I wanted so badly to play it cool, to say exactly the perfect thing, the calm, ironic, suavely existential thing, Is there any help for any of us, really, with death always looming and nothing but other confused fearful creatures to comfort us during our stay on this horrible, marvelous planet? But that's very difficult to pull off when you're breathing like a winded racehorse, nostrils flaring in and out, and your lips dry and your hands clenched in tight fists. I tried to ratchet everything back a bit, but the effort only seemed to make me more winded. I'm just wondering why you don't shop somewhere else if you have such a problem with our store. I licked my lips and tried to reply to her earnest, almost kind-sounding words. But in my wonder and ignorance, all that came out was a kind of clicking sound. At that precise moment, Led Zeppelin came blasting through the PA.
1: ever internet radio show but I say way we did that was communication breakdown by Led Zeppelin before that we had a story by Jack Miller called the grocery store is my nemesis it's
2: true it really is true that's it, not a true story but the grocery store is my nemesis I have I fought it off I don't uh, I don't know How much truth there is to any of the stories we're hearing tonight but uh, mine has a kind of a you know it's a symbolic truth even though that story never really happened I never met Allison in that store but I think I I have sometimes had that happen to me with my mouth with that clicking sound (laughs) it's uh it's happened it may have happened to me with Shannon once in a while all right continuing on our next story is by Consuelo Wise
5: August Wedding It was either the night of the party or the morning after. We're not sure what time, not that it matters. There were fireflies that night. There were bats circling and the alarmed screech of a deer. The kid had marks on his face that looked like he'd been stitched up, large purple gashes on his smooth brown skin. He lay there, his perfect 14-year-old body growing stiffer by the moment. Still, the center where his organs were held heat. Pauline's friends came from New York to see her marry the professor. She loved to hear him give a lecture. His quick delivery made her heart rate go up, and she would imagine walking into his office, pulling back his chair, placing her legs firmly around him, students and faculty passing on the other side of the door. She would look him straight in the eyes. What is it you'd like to know? Things don't line up. Names of the people. Close-ups. We want to know them. We must get to know them quickly. He looked like a colonialist pastor from Ireland. He was short, with a square head and a small face, made smaller by that kind of hair that wants in on the face. He spoke with an energy that seemed both unyielding and calm at once. His words coming out quickly with force so that sometimes it seemed he might stutter, though he never did. The girls suspected he had a huge penis. He had spent a year in the Serengeti. He had lived in Mongolia, Zagreb, Istanbul, Ghana, Korea, Tunisia. The boys Pauline grew up with thought, Yeah, he would be her type. So he's well-traveled, so he reads. He was a little nervous, but well-liked. He didn't slouch his shoulders, and he had a firm grip to his handshake. The wind was strong that night, like it wanted at something. There were white Easter lilies at the tables. Belladonna in the garden. Fires to sit around. Food left out. Small plates of crispy fish, cheese, braised things, lobster, and the usual pie. Make it nice. Better be a good one, Polly. Pauline's brother was joking, then not joking. Hard to say if it made the professor nervous or if it was the kid who was nervous. He seemed like he could have gotten something from getting out of town. He was smart with his money and parents always thought he was polite. The large white globes hanging in the trees swung the light around like a light on a boat. It stretched its beams out towards the river and the far meadow. The boys had put white gravel down in the garden for the fires, but it was also nice for dancing. Fine white gravel. You could hear it crush, hear the swivel and turn, quick draw, quick embrace. It was a wedding as a wedding should be. People were happy for other people, and that's the kind of happiness that seems to exist outside of us. When the family woke, it was explained that some boys had dropped him off, some people they didn't know. It was explained that the gashes were not stitched up, they were tire marks. It was explained the kid had broken his neck. It was explained the next day in the resounding heat and calm silence of the morning that he was dead. The kids up the road came down on their bikes to see what they could see. People arrived with melons, salads, meat, flowers. Some kids built a house by the pond on the far side of the garden. Sitting in the tall grass, they picked the long dried blades, gathering bundles upon bundles winding more grass around each bundle, binding them tightly. They found old boards, stacked the bundles, made walls. The house was a lean-to against the south-facing side of the hill. Tucked in, it was quite hidden from the road and the driveway up to the house. The entryway was framed by one skinny tree and a two-by-four. There was even a roof. The house fit the three siblings and the two kids from up the road. The kids were quite proud of it and so they brought the adults there to show them the work. At some point there was swimming to be done. This comes back easily. It's the details of the night that have grown faint. That white gravel, the moon, the locust imprint on the sky. The wind climbed the canyons and hit the hillsides with a wild, deliberate hunger. People danced.
2: Song that uh, accompanied that story by Kanswela Wise, her story entitled "August Wedding." That was a very beautifully poetic story. Carried me away. If you're looking to get that song, because you're really not sure where it's from, you're going to have to get on the internet and get on the YouTube and type in Khmer New Year." That's spelled K-H-M-E-R New Year. There's actually the entire video is full of all kinds of stuff, and you'll get to watch some people doing that instead of just listening to them. So that's, that's just a little tip where to find that. You're not going to find that in your local record store. We're just over halfway. It's 936 here in the West Coast, Portland, You're listening to White Tiger Radio, episode number one, A Story and a Song. Our next performer is your very own Shannon Emerson.
1: I prefer not to have a best friend. Well, mostly I prefer not to call someone my best friend. Too much of a commitment maybe, claustrophobic even. But since it was so long ago, I feel I can say that Cheryl was my best friend, probably from when we were seven years old to 11. Cheryl and I didn't go to the same school, but our parents were friends and our families attended the same church. Cheryl's family were definitely church people. They held freshly washed hands at the dinner table and prayed before each meal. They ate side salads out of worn wooden bowls, used washcloths instead of applying the soap directly to their bodies, and had a general kindness and goodness about them. My family, on the other hand, were not church people. While we did go to church every Sunday, we went out of a sense of tradition and for the community it provided. Or so that's what I was told years later after we all stopped going to church. My family never once prayed before a meal, not even on a holiday. No one in my family ever even mentioned the word God, unless one of us was practicing a Bible reading that we'd volunteered to recite at the next church service. The truth is, I don't think the idea of God ever made much sense to any of us. I remember my brother once asking if hell was real. My dad said, disparagingly and with a slight sneer, there's no such thing as hell. This pleased us, much more so than the answer we got to our question about how babies get out. That was one bet nobody won. So, yes, Cheryl was my best friend. In the summer, we'd spend days and days together, cycling through each of our family's rituals and daily behaviors several times. Cheryl's house was a 50s ranch with the perfect kid basement. We could do anything down there, play foursquare, roller skate make Barbie and Ken have sex in their dream house, watch the Dukes of Hazzard and listen to music. We made her beagle Spot crazy by tickling him until he was disoriented, and then racing him through the basement so we could jump up on the dryer just as he was about to bite our ankles. The truth is Spot was already crazy, which is why he loved this game. It felt daring and thrilling to us, much more exciting than the soap operas we created in the dream house. Cheryl was much more dramatic than I was. She was more dramatic than almost anyone I knew. She'd always complain and cry when her mom brushed her hair. She'd talk back to her mom even though this wasn't allowed. Don't you sass back, her mom would say. In some ways I wonder how we were friends because we had such a different approach to navigating life. One of the things we definitely had in common was a love of music. Records at my house, cassette tapes at hers. Somehow I'd managed to get the okay to move the family record player from the living room into my bedroom. Cheryl and I would sit and sip straight lemon juice out of wine glasses while we listened to albums. This made us feel fancy and adult. We'd listen to whatever records my parents had. Olivia Newton-John, Johnny Cash, the Bee Gees, Merle Haggard, Anne Murray, Barbara Streisand. Cheryl had one of those new portable tape players, which meant we could have music with us wherever we went we'd take Pat Benatar and Sheila E. with us as we climbed the sour cherry tree in her backyard, or while riding bikes down the road to the Derriette, we'd dance like crazy to Prince on the braided oval rug in her basement. Sometimes we used our allowances to buy music at the mall, or we'd ask for specific albums for birthdays or Christmas. Most of the time, though, we'd borrow records from the local library. We'd choose a stack of records, based mostly on what the covers looked like, and record the ones we liked onto blank cassette tapes. Cheryl's family frequented the YMCA pool in town. One day I went with them, and after suffering through Cheryl getting her wet hair combed out, her mom took us to the library. Our library kept their record albums on the mezzanine level. It would be years later, at Rockefeller Center, in New York City before I encountered another mezzanine level. At our library, this level was used almost entirely for reference books except for one small section that had albums. Cheryl and I went up the staircase and started quietly flipping through the records. Each one was encased in a thick plastic sleeve that had a pocket for the stamped card. I can't remember if the albums were in alphabetical order or organized by genre. It didn't really matter to us since we made our choices based mostly on the cover. As we were flipping through the stack, we came to an album with a woman on the front who had hair we could only dream of having It was like she'd feathered it in a zero-gravity environment. No pick we'd ever seen at the drugstore was capable of creating that kind of lift. We'd never heard of Bonnie Tyler before, but her hair told us that she definitely had a message we needed to hear. We headed to my house after the library so Cheryl's mom and my mom could can tomatoes. Or maybe they'd just gossip over a pot of Maxwell House. Either way, this meant we could listen to our new record and make one copy for each of us. Looking back, the process for recording an album onto a tape was complicated and fraught with X-factors. To us, at the time, it felt like we were getting away with something. A typical recording session required plugging in my boombox, inserting a blank tape on the side that could record, and putting the box directly in front of the stereo speakers. We then placed the record under the magnetic arm so it hovered stiffly above the turntable. The last and most difficult step was to reduce background noise. We'd go around to everyone in the house and tell them we were about to begin recording, and ask them to be extra quiet for a half an hour. I don't think we ever got a recording without a few errant sounds, but it was okay because those sounds melded with the music and made each recording unique. Once we were confident that everything was in place to get the best possible recording, we'd return to my room, closing the door tightly to create an additional barrier to outside sounds. We'd always push record first, then drop the record. As it started to play, we'd carefully and quietly position ourselves on the bed and listen.
2: recently, in fact, I saw the rain this afternoon. It came down. There was even hail. That is a John Fogerty song being covered by Bonnie Tyler, Have You Ever Seen the Rain, to accompany a story by Shannon Emerson called Audio Style. And that sound of the dropping needle that you heard there, that was not a recorded effect. That was actually the phonograph here in the White Tiger Lounge playing the Bonnie Tyler album. I'm holding the album cover right here in my hand, not the one that Shannon got at the library but one that arrived here thanks to the internet not too long ago, and it really is a truly astounding image. The Bonnie Tyler's looking right at me, and it's one of those things where no matter where you hold it, no matter where you go, the eyes are looking right at you. This is an astounding little record here. Faster Than the Speed of Night. came out in 1993. Uh, It starts with the cover song, track one, side one. Have you ever seen The Rain? But, of course, the big hit on that album was Total Eclipse of the Heart, Bonnie Tyler, She took us from the 70s right into the 80s. Next up, we have
1: Roberto Bonacorso.
6: The Sea Doesn't Yell Back by Roberto Bonacorso. We celebrated my 40th birthday at Cape Disappointment, and that, dear listener, is not just a literary device. Cape Disappointment is an 1,800-acre state park in Washington State on the mouth of the Columbia River. It is a stunning piece of land with miles of beach that is constantly carved and reshaped by the pounding surf. It is where Lewis and Clark first saw the ocean after crossing North America in a failed search for the Northwest Passage, where navigators braved the stormy coastline for decades, unable to find the entrance to North America's fourth largest river. It is also a special place for me. To paraphrase the guitarist Leo Kotke, Whenever I feel like a ship out of the ocean about to run aground on desert sand, I head for the sheltering coves at Cape Disappointment. And let me tell you now, I don't handle birthdays at all. Every year, I tell myself it will be okay, no big deal, just another day on the calendar. But about a week before, I begin to lose it. I dwell on the past, on every bad decision I've made, on all the people I no longer know I wake up in the middle of the night gasping for breath. I become a real pain in the ass. And my wife, she knows this too well. So when my big 4-0 came into view, she planned a special trip to the coast to take some of the bite out of it. For the first time, it would be three of us. Our son, born less than a year earlier, was crawling and just starting to stand. With an infant in tow, and with this being March, and with March being the time of year when the sky pisses on your face for weeks on end, we figured it would be better to stay in a real building, with heat and water, instead of the usual tent or yurt. My wife found us a spot in a small resort that promised a zen-like experience of peaceful woods, rustic cottages, a reflection pond, and a short walk through beach grass to the shore. We packed the rain gear, the baby toys, blankets, and our hundred pound dog into the tiny Nissan and headed to the beach. Hours later, when we finally arrived at the resort, we found a row of old plywood shacks on soggy moss. The reflection pond, a mosquito infested drainage ditch. And as we opened the door to our shack, the dog ran to the corner of the bed, took a sniff and let out a long stream right onto the polyester bed cover not a good start but we didn't come here to spend time in a cottage so we packed back into the car drove the few minutes to Cape Disappointment to the beach by the North Head Lighthouse we let the dog free of the leash we put the kid in a sling and we got ready to breathe the first fresh air that hits the United States from across the sea One minute after our feet touched black sand, the sky cut loose with heavy bullet drops. The wind whipped sand all around us. The kid began screaming his head off and we had no choice but to run back to the car, some of us with tails between our legs. After a mediocre seafood meal at Long Beach, we headed back to the shack and things were not getting better. There was no cable TV, just over the air network supplemented by an old VCR stuck with mainstream movies from the 1990s. And the rain would not stop. And that's when we learned why the dog decided to use the bed earlier as a fire hydrant. Our cottage has suffered a sewer backup. And we knew this because the carpet and the box spring smelled like the result. It was too late to move to a different place, so we hunkered down, opened all the windows, kept the kid off the carpet, and settled in to watch ballroom dancing on VHS. The next morning, my actual birthday, I woke up early and quietly, got on my boots, rain gear, grabbed a hold of the dog, and headed to the beach. The sun was barely up. The wind roared so hard that it was difficult to walk. Sand scurried across the beach in waves, biting into my legs through heavy pants. I struggled to the edge of the surf as 12-foot waves crashed one after the other into the long strand. It was, as always, so terribly rugged and so beautiful. I balled up my fists, raised them up high, and yelled at the top of my lungs, 40 años, carajo! 40 years, goddammit! And the dog cocked his head at me. Frisbee? Pero no me rindo! I yelled again. I ain't giving up. And then I felt the molasses thinning out of my head and the beginning of a smile. I soon found the sweet spot into the wind where I could throw the frisbee for some epic dog catches. Walking back to the cottage, the dog and I caught sight of a deer actually munching on some of that famous beach grass on the beach trail. And By the time the kid and the wife got up, the grey hair parted, the wind had calmed down. We spent the rest of the day in the strip, tossing the frisbee, chasing seabirds, watching the waves of sand streaking like snakes across the beach, getting humbled again and again by the relentless pacific. Cape Disappointment, like every song by Leo Karki, always delivers.
7: ship out of the ocean about to go aground on desert sand feeling like an eagle losing motion tired of flying ain't nowhere to land every day is all the same same change going from the cradle to the grave I don't think I've ever felt so helpless always feeling like my hands are tied failure at most everything I've dealt with Everything I try Every day's all the same Same old ways never change Going from the cradle to the grave Going from the cradle to the grave Running for my life at every moment Never having time to catch my breath Sometimes I wish this crazy race were over Thought of living scares me half to death And every day's all the same Same old ways never change Going from the cradle to the grave
1: is a an odd coincidence but and maybe that i'm making it up but it's true actually i have a bumper sticker that says leo kotke always delivers you should have one too
2: yeah i think you can probably just get them online at leo always com. isn't that where you got yours
1: um it might be net. i don't know actually oh yeah right Somebody something like has. that right sorry i'm you know
2: i speak without actually verifying my facts everybody knows that <laughs>
1: That was From the Cradle to the Grave by Leo Kotke. Before that was a story by Roberto Bonacorso called The Sea Doesn't Yell Back.
2: I think Roberto will be the guy to know that. Okay. It's coming up on 10 o'clock Pacific Time here in Portland. I hope you're all having a nice time here at White Tiger Radio. We're having a good time here in the garage. We have one more story for you tonight. And this story is by Portland's own Heather Heater.
8: It's not just fun and games. Starting her period emboldened her with prowess and a little reckless danger that comes from officially being a woman. Inspired by this newfound power, and maybe the hormones too, she develops a taste for shoplifting. Taking risks is incredibly easy, because no one is ever paying attention. Or, even better, they only pay attention when it benefits her. It doesn't hurt that she looks younger than she is. Baby-faced and innocent. She loves stealing Hello Kitty stuff. She steals her dad a Father's Day present. It's a mug that says... World's best dad. She has a little posse she runs with. They like to steal too. Her main partner in crime is a beautiful, wild little thing with long, wavy brown hair. When her friend smiles, it's a little dangerous, and this makes her cunt tingle in ways she can't explain. This quality in her friend is both extremely attractive. And deeply troubling. When they are stealing together, there is a heightened sense of risk and their experiences feel different somehow, but she can never place it. One day, as they are exiting the mall after a particularly good haul, the security guard stops her friend. She herself is never questioned and she does not expect to be. She is used to being invisible when it matters like in circumstances such as this when she is presumed to be upstanding and blameless even though she is holding hundreds of dollars of stolen goods in her bag. Her friend runs out the door before trouble starts. The security guard tells her to have a nice day and gives her the nod that implies she should run along and play. And that she needs to be careful with who she runs around with because someone might get the wrong impression later in the hot tub her friend is laughing while we're telling their story she is wearing the new bathing suit she stole it cost eighty dollars it is 1989. she starts having sex not long after she finds she needs an abortion She is 17. Her boyfriend doesn't want her parents to know, so she applies for public assistance to pay for the procedure. She goes alone. The building is crowded and hot. It is sterile and drab. The line to get to the counter is extremely long. She takes a number and waits many hours to be seen. She describes her situation to the woman behind the desk. It is the first time in her life people behind a counter have looked down on her and treated her badly. It feels awful. She is just another pregnant teenager. She feels humiliated and then indignant. Even though she is asking for a handout she does not need. The projection of indifference and implied shame is so shocking such a contrast to her entire lived experience of being treated well wherever she goes, that it does not occur to her that some people get treated like this all the time. She is driving her parents' white Cadillac Sedan DeVille, north of the city while she is smoking pot out of a large purple bong. She gets pulled over for speeding. Smoke is pouring out as she rolls down the windows, to give the officer her license and registration. The police search her car and belongings. They find a loaded bong and a half ounce of pot. The pound of mushrooms that were at the bottom of the backpack thankfully go undiscovered. But she's confident the cops were not looking very hard anyway. She is deathly afraid of what her parents will think if she gets a ticket. It never enters her mind that she could be arrested or worse. One of the policemen drives her boyfriend in the squad car. The other nice officer drives the Cadillac. They take the couple to Denny's and suggest they eat something to stave off the munchies before getting back on the road. As she gets back behind the wheel she might have said, thank God I'm white. She goes to community college She does not take it very seriously. She smokes a lot of pot, but remains in good standing because her teachers make concessions for her, even though she often slacks off. She gets called on a lot. She sits up front in the classroom. She is very familiar with the system. It does not frighten or intimidate her. She feels so comfortable. It all feels like what she has always known before where everybody who really mattered looked like her and was in charge. She assumes people like her because she is always treated nicely. She has never had to prove her worth. To be honest, it was never really questioned. Everyone she has ever met assumes she is smart. She assumes they think that because they believe it to be true. She is in her early twenties. She is living at home. Her best friends have come over for dinner. Her male friend's race is ambiguous, but he cannot pass for white. He is over six feet tall, with long, dark brown dreadlocks. Her female friend is a dark-skinned Chicana, also with dreadlocks. At the end of their evening, which was fun and loving, as always, in which they talked politics, especially dismantling capitalism, and their work to legalize industrial hemp in California, her friends wrap up their sleeping daughter in a blanket and put her in the cab of the truck. They notice there are police cars parked down the street. They return inside the house for the rest of their things. When they exit the house again, they find three police cars surrounding their truck. Her dog is upset at these intruders. He runs onto the lawn and barks at the policemen. The friends are yelling, the dog is barking, the situation quickly escalates. The police pull out their guns and point them at the friends, at her, at her dog. They tell her to control the dog or they will shoot. She tells them all to please calm down. She needs to put the dog inside. The police question her friends. Guns are still drawn while they do this. It takes a long, long time. It feels like an eternity before the guns are back in their holsters. They tell her and her friends that neighbors reported something suspicious. They wanted to ensure her friends were invited into the neighborhood. She assures them that they are. She is angry. She has lived in that house her whole life. She cannot remember ever seeing a police car on her street. Her parents have lived in that house for over 35 years. No one has ever called the police before. Her friends are humiliated. They are angry. She is angry. She loves her friends. She begins to put it all together. It takes seeing a police officer pull out a gun and threaten to kill someone she loves on the lawn she has walked across all her life, in the neighborhood that has felt so safe and comfortable for her, in which she has never once seen a police car. It takes witnessing her friends be questioned at gunpoint in front of this childhood home to realize that she is privileged and she knows nothing about her privilege and how dangerous her life might be, how different all of those experiences might have been if she wasn't white. As her friends are pulling away, she hears the song they are playing on the truck stereo. It is a song they have danced to in her kitchen, with wild abandoned and caresses that imply they might all one day have sex together. They have played this song many times while cooking elaborate meals, which they eat late at night, while they pass the ball around and drink her parents' expensive wine. It is a song that has been nothing but funky, something to groove to, but tonight it has a whole new meaning.
0: Do you know where I'm coming from? You can't be greedy. you gotta take some and leave.
2: you listening to take some leave some by james brown this is the song that accompanies the story by heather heater it's not just fun and games and i guess it is not just fun and games listening to that story it's a fantastic way to go out tonight i'm gonna let you guys roll on out with some james brown